0: Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory. And again, we're going to talk about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to hit a number of Different topics and try to bring them all together into one. One of those, uh, you know, we've talked about it many times religion, and the we point out to the, the fact that uh, religion is defined differently at different times and in different when you look at different sources. And as you change the definition of words, You change the way people think, because, especially if they go back and read ancient texts or older texts, you know, historical texts, and at the time something was written, religion meant one thing, and at another time it meant another. And you could do the same thing with other words like democracy. We point out in 1927, the Army Field Manual defined democracy as a really bad and wicked form of government and this is US army field manual and uh, by 1954 the the equivalent of the same field manual define democracy is what we're fighting for and it's a great thing and it's a wonderful thing so which is it which definition are we to use well if if it was a bad thing in 1927 or still listed as a bad thing in 1927 because already in 1927, democracy was starting to look like a good thing. And, of course, we had a thing called the Democratic Party in, in the United States. And the Democratic Party was saying that they were democratic. Although they opposed uh, the ending of slavery, they opposed uh, the Civil Rights Act, they they opposed uh, you know a lot of things that you would think were more democratic, but yet they called themselves a Democratic Party. And uh, so, but the thing is, over a period of time, these words shift about. And what what that word democratic meant at a particular time. So it's very important that when you go and you want to study, you know, a document that's 100 years old or 200 years old or 2,000 years old, that you understand the meaning of the words at the time the document was written. Not what you think that word means today or what that word might even mean today, but what that word meant back when the original document was written. So, reading things like scriptures, like the Bible, the New Testament was written, you know, approximately 2,000 years ago, a little bit after that, and those words meant something. and, And... One of the basic translations we have is the King James, and that was translated hundreds of years ago. There's been a lot of subsequent translations that are supposedly bringing in more modern language, but more modern language what? 200 years ago, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. So understanding the context of what the author is trying to convey to you is very important. So I read an article. I haven't read the whole article, actually. I've read bits and pieces of it. But it says, From Astrology, Cult Politics, The Many Ways We Try, and in parentheses and fail, to replace religion, which is an article that appears on Quillette. And we'll talk about this article more in, in days to come. But uh it, it talks about this idea of trying to replace religion With a form of secularism, you know, I mean, people say, well, you know, belief in God is superstitious, but the belief in the Big Bang is science. Well, not really, because the Big Bang, nobody was an eyewitness. We see evidence that suggests that there might have been a singularity of cause of the universe, a Big Bang explosion and things, but they don't, they don't have any idea what banged. What exploded? How it exploded? What brought it all about? All that is based on, you know, I mean, it's you're you're just as well off in believing in God as you are in the Big Bang, because the evidence really of if of what even the Big Bang was is non-existence. It it takes huge leaps of faith that that and then so they try to explain it away and they they create a multi-universe concept, and then you're supposed to believe in the multi-universe, which nobody really has any evidence that the multi-universe exists. I mean, there are certain evidence that energy seems to pop in from nowhere. And so they guess that that's another dimension. And so they say, well, there's another dimension exists, because that must be where the energy is coming from. But they don't see the other dimension. (laughs) They're just guessing it. And they are guessing it with, you know, they have certain mathematical models that they they say, well, this must be so, but it's still projection, and it's still faith in their mathematics, and over the years, their mathematics is constantly changing, and and even contradicting, uh, and, you know, some theories are thrown out because they find new evidence that counters that, and then... They reformulate, you know, membrane theory and string theory and all these different theories. And they all have certain problems. And if you close your mind to the problem, then you can believe in it. But if you don't close your mind to the problem, then you have to explain what the problem is. So all that is extremely complicated. And, and so most people think, oh, well, they're scientists. They're wearing white coats. They know what they're talking about. But a great deal of the science today is based on faith belief, uh, assumptions about the universe. And uh, so, but you're supposed to, so the idea is that we're replacing the superstition of religion with the scientific facts. Uh, But their facts are observations and conclusions drawn from theories. And then, so there's a theory that there's a God as, or at least we call it God. God. If we, somebody asks us to draw it, like the little girl who was drawing a picture, and they, the teacher says, what, what are you drawing a picture of? And they says, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher says, nobody, you know, and the little girl's drawing away. And uh, she says, nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl says, they will in a minute. Uh, because she thought, well, I'm drawing a picture of him. And the reality is, is that's, from her point of view, she's drawing a picture of God. Does he look like Charlton Heston, um you know, or George Burns or or uh Morgan Freeman, uh, who have all played God in the movies <laughs> so we don't know what God looks like and uh but what God is is a heuristic that we use, a term we use to express some sort of divine intelligence that's behind creation. Not just a big random big bang and everything just kind of falls into place after that i mean the the idea that 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 takes a huge leap of faith that everything is just you know all these patterns and all these things of creation you know the the uh periodic tables you know the elements and all these things create patterns. And interact and create more patterns and life comes and, and life seems to be conscious and communicates with other life walking about and reproduces consistently for thousands of years. And supposedly reproductions from millions of years and, and even billions of years of life on this planet interacting and comes up with us. And, but there is no God. This is all, it's just it's all chemical reaction. There is no free choice. We're all just a product of our environment or a product of our genetics. Well, yeah, maybe, but then what do you do with the multiverse? <laughs> and are there some universes that are more powerful than others? Is there, I mean, what is heaven and hell but just other realms and dimensions? And a way of expressing what those other realms and dimensions look like. So, that, that's just part of the multiverse. Uh, there are many mansions, Jesus says. Is that many universes? Just another way of saying it? Uh, and then, so how many are there? Is there an infinite number or not an infinite number? I we don't know. It's just something we talk about, and neither do the scientists know. It's just something they talk about. Now, something exists, you know, I think, therefore I am, but how is it all related? What what is supernatural? Is there anything at all in the universe that is supernatural, above nature? Or is it simply what we call supernatural is above the nature that we see? you know, the physical universe we see with our eyes, which is a limit. We know there's all kinds of light around us that our eyes do not see. So therefore there are... And what our, when our eyes receive light, they're only receiving a reflection off of other objects. And we see them. So you can reach out, and if you are blind, you could reach out and touch these objects and get a vision in your mind of what you're touching. So when we say supernatural, we're saying something... Greater than nature, something more than nature. Well, we have to encapsulate nature into what we see, touch, feel, smell, taste, and, and recognize that it exists with our senses, even if we look at it through uh, a microscope or an electron uh, microscope or whatever. But then we've capsulated nature into what we can see, and then we say things that are above that, or more than that, more than what we can see, are supernatural. But wouldn't everything, what we see and not see, still be natural? So is, is there anything above that nature of existence? If that energy pops in from those other universes, is that supernatural or is it just super the universe we see and feel and touch? So, is there anything such as a miracle? You know, it's it all is relative to how we look at things. Something that is more than what we see, more than what we are used to seeing, more than what we have been comfortable with seeing, that becomes supernatural or miraculous or what have you. But that's perspective. That's point of view. That And our perspective and point of view is dependent upon what we can see, feel, touch, and imagine to be true. But there is a truth out there. There is an existence out there. Does our thinking affect that existence? Maybe. There's a lot of evidence to prove that that is. So anyway, where are we going with all this? Like I said, I was just going to touch on that article. This happens to be, we're coming up on the new year when this show is done but this kind of our topic is universal so it doesn't really matter but in the there was a incident recently in a valley nearby here and somebody else who follows the the uh, Facebook of that valley uh, which is a kind of a community Facebook saw an argument developing in that valley's Facebook about Christmas is Christmas a pagan holiday well, most people don't think so. Or, well, I shouldn't say most people. A lot of people don't think so. A lot of people who celebrate Christmas, they don't even think about it being a pagan holiday. They just celebrate Christmas because their parents celebrated Christmas and maybe their grandparents celebrated Christmas and so they celebrate Christmas. But there are a certain number of people going around today saying that Christmas is a pagan holiday. So is Christmas a pagan holiday? And But brought into Christianity by pagan influences? And does it really matter? What's really going on? And this, what we're really talking about is here is not Christmas or whether it's a pagan holiday, but it's that perspective, that way we look at things and how the way we look at things frightens us. Now, you know, you can get a paranoid schizophrenic that sees something that is absolutely harmless and not a threat, but they imagine it to be a threat. They react to it as if it's a threat. They actually go up and hit it with a club in self-protection because they imagine it to be a threat. And they end up, you know, bludgeoning some old woman in the street because they thought it was a CIA agent spying on them. None of which was true, but in their mind it was true. And so they reacted to what they, how they perceived things. And so, of course, that's an ex- extreme case. We can say, well, that guy's crazy. He has imagined that this old woman was a threat, and he went up and hit her with a big pipe. I mean, there's actually such an incident. He was going around hitting everybody with pipes. Because he thought everybody was conspiring and attacking him, because he was having a you know, episode, a schizophrenic episode, and delusion. But those are extreme cases, and it's easy to say, well, that that guy is crazy, and that's extreme, and obviously that's not what's taking place. And and of course, you have movies like uh, Conspiracy Theory, where this guy is supposedly crazy, and and imagining that all these conspiracies are going on and then it ends up by the end of the movie that there really was a conspiracy going on. But he also was crazy. <laughs> he was a little bit nuts. But he was, some of the things he was saying were true. There really was conspiracies going on. I always think it's funny when people talk about conspiracy theories because if you study history, what you're often studying is a series of true conspiracy theories. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, Gulf of Tonquin, Uh You say, oh, that was a conspiracy theory. but Yeah, but it was true, too, because it's been proven and confessed. And they say, yeah, yeah, we were doing that. And there were all kinds of these things throughout history. You know, my own great uncle, I've told this story before, uh, was... You know, there was actually a London Times reporting that he was beheaded in the Tower of London as a traitor because he divulged secret information to the enemy. And so he was tried and convicted and beheaded in the Tower of London. Well, I have a picture of him holding up that newspaper that says that he was beheaded in the Tower of London in a Minneapolis parade (laughs) back in... Uh, back when he was uh, an older man, but uh, many years after he was supposedly beheaded. And what the story was is that he had divulged false information to spies, known spies, so that they would believe that the British were moving troops to a particular place and location at a particular time. They would move troops to intercept those troops to stop them from landing, I think it was in South Africa or someplace. It was during the Boer Wars, I think. And uh, in order to get the spies to be convinced that that information was true, they faked his trial and beheading in the Tower of London. So he was actually a double agent <laughs> working for the Queen. And, uh, you know, and that's just history. That's just part of my own personal uh, heritage and history is that uh he it was a conspiracy of a conspiracy of a conspiracy <laughs> but it when you put them all together you find out what the real truth was so we're going to take a little a little brief look at this idea is christianity pagan and one of the reasons I thought about this well it's the season uh for conspiracy theories it's always a season for conspiracy theories but somebody wrote on the New York group and the network. Everybody should be a part of the network and find out what's really going on. It's the quickest way that we can get information out to everybody. And it's also organized in the way the Living Network, not just the email network, but the Living Network is organized in a way that Christ commanded his disciples to organize the people. Clearly, the early church was organized in this fashion long before Constantine. And so everybody should... and. And the reality is, if you go back to the time of Moses, they used the same pattern, and even, uh, Abraham used the same pattern, which is why Jethro knew of the pattern, which is a pattern that was used even before Nimrod, and before, probably before Cain, believe it or not, but, uh, that's another issue altogether. But anyway, there, there's an article, and I was gonna copy and paste some of it, and, uh, in my notes so that uh, I could go off of this article, but they have blocked copying and pasting (laughs) the article. But it's on uh, 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 johnsonadopolis.com. But it's seven men who tried to paganize the origins of Christmas but failed. So, you know, there's lots of books. I even know some of the people who wrote some of the books saying that uh, Christmas is a pagan holiday. And, uh, you know, the one individual, I, the name as author on the book is Israel. That's not his real name. Uh, something Israel. I don't remember. But Israel is in his name. But the, none of that is his real name. I know his real name. And he lives back east. And uh, he's divorced and uh, a bit of a recluse and hasn't paid all his debts. And But he is absolutely convinced that all these holidays and – And modern Christianity, including the Protestant religions, is the result of pagan religions. And this is what the guy in the valley north of us, Christmas Valley, was saying, is that Christianity, you know, Christmas is pagan, and anybody who's celebrating is going to go to hell. Eventually that came out. Somebody was antagonizing him, and the whole posts were going back and forth. And... and, uh, And the guy who was antagonizing him, I've met met his family. And he's, he's just, he was just playing the devil's advocate and playing a little bit of a game. But the guy was getting all worked up about it. Because his faith is now moved from believing in Christmas to believing that Christmas is a pagan holiday. And both, what I'm going to suggest is that both ideas are danger and a pitfall and have nothing to do with the message of either the old or new testaments and it's a distraction that leads you down a rabbit trail from which there is no return and uh, but anyway we'll look at you know the uh, briefly you know Paul Ernst uh, Jablonsky who lived back in uh, the early 1700s wrote a book uh, concerning the origins of Christmas. And uh, he, he puts forth in that book that you know, a lot of the origins of what we knew as Christmas. Now, him writing about Christmas in the 1700s, Christmas was looked at much differently than what we see today. Much of what we see today as Christmas is the product of commercial advertising. You know, the whole Santa... You know, there was a character that we can call Santa Claus in different folklore in different countries. But our image of Santa today is really a product of, of commercials and commercializing Christmas to get people to buy more stuff and to give all these gifts and everything. But you will find bits and pieces of the what you see as the Christmas holiday in ancient folklore. And of course, uh, Jablonski goes back and says that it's part of the Mithra legends that the Romans... Uh, incorporated into their own system, and the Romans were big. You know, all the Roman gods were just Greek gods before they became Roman gods. And the reality is that most of the Romans didn't look at these go- creatures, these these gods, as real gods. They were they were symbols of certain characteristics and personalities, and they used them in their temples. But their temples all had actual practical functions. They were mostly government buildings by the time of Christ supported by taxation and providing services. And one of the reasons I'm touching on this is right now the United States government is supposedly in a shutdown. I was talking to federal employees just the other day who are shut down and people are worried about can we pay our bills because the government is shut down and we're going to tie all these different ideas together so that you can get a little bit clearer perspective of what the early church was doing what Abraham was doing what Moses was doing and how they what and what they all have in common and so to understand that we'll we'll take a look when we be right back to keys of the kingdom so welcome back to keys of the kingdom so how how does this all fit together and and where are we going with all this and is Christ, Christmas really a pagan holiday Christmas as it's practiced most of the time today Probably throughout the world, you know, I'm familiar with some countries and what they do there. There's a lot of symbols we see, you know, Santa and elves and Christmas trees and lights on Christmas trees and decorating those trees and all these things. This is all just the super, superficial dressings that we put into what we call a holiday. Now a lot of people, you know, Christmas happens to be a time when there's a lot more suicides, a lot more depression. Uh, why would that be? It's supposed to be the, you know, season of joy and, and, and camaraderie and friendship. And the reality is, most of the people who celebrate Christmas, I don't know about most, but a lot of the people who celebrate Christmas, at least they have the intention of coming together with family and friends and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. All that's good, that's fine. Uh, and if they, they want to dress up like elves and wear Santa suits and stuff like that, you know they can do that if they want. That I don't think that has anything to do with uh, the real interest there. And then what does all that have to do with the government shutdown, and uh, which is taking place over Christmas, probably going to take place over the New Year's? You know already we see Schumer backtracking that he says, well, uh, that Pelosi is the one who's uh, standing their ground. Of course, Pelosi's in Hawaii celebrating Christmas. And doing whatever Pelosi does in Hawaii on Christmas, but uh, what what's really going on? What we want to do is develop a, a perspective of reality and move away from all the delusion and and false rhetoric. So you have this guy in the valley north of us who's saying you're going to hell if you celebrate Christmas, and somebody else is is uh, poking him and antagonizing him. He, he actually was using two different Facebook accounts. Uh, one was on his side and agreeing, and the other one was disagreeing and arguing against him. And eventually, the whole thing just disappeared. Somebody took it down. <laughs> but I I wasn't following it. Somebody else was and giving me updates. Uh, but there's so much misinformation about all this. And when Paul Ernst uh, Jablonski wrote his. Uh, concerning the origin of Christmas, which actually was, I think, written in Latin, uh, not originally in English, but that's the way publications sometimes were way back then, and then somebody would have to translate it. But, uh, some, someone writing about that now said he gave absolutely no facts, uh, in his claims, uh, unsupported by any historical evidence. Well, that's not entirely true. And, of course, people could say that in an article, but then they didn't go back and actually read it. They can't read Latin, and so they have to read it in a translation. But it was not written as you would write a peer-reviewed paper today. He was making claims, and the the fact that he himself was educated, could write in Latin or English or any other language, that uh, he was an authority, and he was making these suggestions. Well, almost immediately, there was another book that came out, Written by Ernst Frederick Wormsdorf, and it was in the same period, it was a little bit later, and it was the origins of Christmas in the festival of the birth of the unconquerable sun, S U N, sun. And he put in more facts and uh, was also kind of attacking Christianity, or at least Catholicism, in this, but he was saying certain things uh, about the Pagan, supposedly putting this word pagan in here will explain why. Pagan origins of Christmas or of even just Christianity. And this article refutes that saying so much so that they were willing to, you know, that Christians were so much against anything pagan that they were willing to be slaughtered in the arena rather than agree to anything the pagans wanted uh, them to do to fit into being Greek, you know, or what we might see as Hellenistic, and but the reality is, is that's that's the guy who wrote that doesn't understand what the real Christian conflict was. He doesn't understand what a pagan was. And somebody wrote, like I said, on the New York group and asked, "What's a pagan? What what did it originally mean?" Well, a pagan actually means Someone from a small village. That's all it meant at that time. Yet, at the time of Christ, the word pagan just meant somebody from a small village. Now, it did develop sort of a connotation. The more the city of Rome grew into this magnificent city and people became supposedly educated and everything else, uh, they began to look down on somebody from a small village as kind of a hick. You know, they're from a small village. They, they're naive. You know, they, they're not sophisticated like we are from the big city. And of course we have the same terms today. You know, someone might say you're a redneck. You know, the word pagan could literally be translated redneck, depending on who's tra- doing the translating. From my, uh, community, if somebody calls you a redneck, that's actually a compliment. <laughs> it's not a bad thing. <laughs> but if you're from the city, a redneck is somebody who is, you know, shallow and, and, uh, country bumpkin. There's another phrase that we throw out. And, uh, and so that's kind of what pagan would mean, depending on who's using it. That's what it meant. You're from some small town. You have a small town mentality. You're not sophisticated like the rest of us. So, there was no pagan religion. Uh, as a matter of fact, you didn't even have to be religious to be considered pagan. You're just from a small village. That's all. That's all it meant. And But like I said, over a period of time, then it became, you know, like redneck. You know, of course, we have the comedian out there that, you know, if you mow your lawn and find a car you're probably a redneck, you know. And uh that comes from, you know, other com- comedian-type deals that uh uh here's your sign kind of approach to things, showing that people are not very bright. But, so yeah, it got that connotation, but originally it was just that you were from a small village. There were other books written in the, that same century, Edward Gibbons, now that's a much more sophisticated book. He doesn't necessarily have a lot of peer review paper type of information, but he does have a lot of information because his Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire was not just a book, but a series of books, a whole collection of books. And it was one of the probably uh, more uh, read historical documents, history books, at that time. It was very popular because it came out about 1776. And, of course, there had been lots of other people writing about some of the same topics, because it was becoming a hot topic. You know, what how were governments formed? What was going what's a part of our history? What's the evolution of government? And so, you know, that came out during the American Revolution. Now, most people don't know this, maybe a lot of our listeners do, but Christmas, it was actually illegal in many of the colonies to even celebrate Christmas. If you were caught celebrating Christmas in any way shape or form, you could actually be fined and uh cuz it was illegal to even celebrate christmas cuz there was a kind of a backlash against christmas there was also another guy who wrote a little bit later uh, in the 1800s alexander hislop and uh or hissop depending on how you want to pronounce it and um uh, and and he he's known for a lot of other things but he was kind of uh looking at uh uh Constantine as a villain and one of the and villainizing Constantine and suggesting that the Roman Catholic Church was uh originated by Constantine not by Christ. And there's a lot of evidence to that uh out there uh, in uh historical documents that they are. But again, what we ultimately want to look at is the principles of Christ, the actual precepts, not the metaphors. And because, like, if we, we've done this many times. We go back to the Old Testament and you look at, cast your bread upon the waters. That's not describing a religious ceremony where you go down to the lake, cast bread upon the waters. It's a metaphor. And many of the other things that we've turned into actual ritual practices, or at least the Jews did, as they fell away from the principles of Abraham and Moses they began to practice these metaphors as if they were religious ceremonies. And we we talk about religious ceremonies and religious rites. They have to be rooted in the actual principles of virtue and loving your neighbor, actually practical ways of doing these things. And uh, when Constantine first began to formulate his version of Christianity with the help of people like Ambrose and and even Jerome and others they understood to probably a greater degree what Christianity was the fundamental essences of Christianity some of the fundamental not all of them some of the fundamental essences of Christianity better than many of the modern Christians do today although many of the modern Christians do do good things like Christ said to do. What Constantine knew is that the temples of Rome had to be supported mostly, or at least more so, by the contribution, the free will contributions of the people. And this was a step back towards the way Jerusalem was operating before Herod the Great. Because Herod the Great said, well, we're going to support the our religious faith through a system of Corbin that where you sign up and you had to pay in. And then you could, in your obligations to your community, to your parents, you could say, Well, I have fulfilled that because I have paid into the temple. And so now you can go to the temple and get what you want, what you need back. Because I've already given to the temple. And so that's what should be supporting you. People will not understand that. But that's how we're going to tie all this together. Anyway, there's a couple other guys that were written about, because remember this is seven. There was a contemporary uh, Charles William uh, King uh, back uh, 1880s. He was around uh, 1850s. And he published his influential The Gnostic and Their Remains. And he published that, I think, around 1860 or 1864. And, uh, he's also referring to this Mithraism and that influence that was carrying over. And it really doesn't matter all these things, it's just a matter of historic. There were other guys like Gerald Massey and Wallace Budge, and they all wrote about these things. Some of them, some of their books were better written than others. Some of them brought in a lot of ideas that everything from Mistletoe to to what have you they equated back to ancient practices and some of their writing is probably fairly accurate but some of it is actually kind of a stretch trying to make their point and make their book popular everybody wanted to come up with something new to tie back to those ancient myths and then those people who were leaning in that direction of belief and were wanting to outlaw uh, Christmas and things like that, they would buy those books looking for more evidence to justify their position. But I'm actually saying the real Christian position should be completely outside of all that conflict. That isn't... I don't care whether you celebrate Christmas or you don't celebrate Christmas. I don't um, care whether you put up a tree or don't put up a tree. Now, to be honest... You know, and this is one of the, the quotes from the Bible that people like to bring up. That, uh, which you go back to uh, Jeremiah 10. And it, and this, a lot of people are surprised that this is in there. And it depends on, the translation is not perfect here either, but it's accurate enough where you can get the picture. It says, Hear ye the words of the Lord, speaketh unto you, O house of Israel, saith the Lord, learn not the ways of the heathen, and now we have this word heathen there. What word is that? Is that like pagan? It can, can we just plug in the word pagan there? Well, I'm not going to even tell you. I'm not going to go into that. It says, be not dismayed at the signs of the heaven, or uh, for the heathen are dismayed at them. So he's talking about, what's, so what's the signs of the heaven? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Uh, for the customs of the people are vain. Now he's talking about customs. These are those rites and ceremonies. Other people are in vain, are vain. He doesn't actually say in vain. He says vain. And uh, actually the word are isn't even in the original text, but the people vain. So the customs, people, vain, that's all there in the sentence. For one cutteth a tree out in the forest, the work of his hands, and the workman with the axe. They deck it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers, that it move not. So they cut down a tree. They fasten it with nails and hammers, and they make it stand upright. It goes on to say in, in verse 5, They are upright as palm trees, but speak not. So this is, this is a metaphor of something other than your Christmas tree. But this is one of the verses that they say, you know, you know you're know, you not supposed to be uh, uh, doing this, cutting this tree in the forest and bringing it inside and setting it up so it stands upright because you fastened it with nails and you decorate it with silver and gold. They, and it goes on to say, they must needs uh, be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. So, th- this quote is one of the quotes that people bring up to say that you should not be celebrating Christmas and setting up Christmas trees. Has nothing to do with trees, any more than going down to the lake and casting your bread upon the waters has to do with going down to the lake and throwing tortillas out there on the lake. That is not. That is not what the verse is about. These are metaphors telling you about something else that you decorate with silver and gold. Do you, do you, it actually doesn't say decorate. The, the word there is, uh, they deck it with silver and gold. So what do they mean? They deck it with silver and gold. Uh, I was, I was going to look up the word deck there and see what the, the word there is yaffa, the Hebrew word, which is said to mean uh, it's translated fair four times, beautiful twice, deck it only once. Uh, it's supposed to mean uh, to be bright, to be beautiful, to be handsome, to be fair. So they they make it what it is with silver and gold. They give it silver and gold, and they make it stand upright. But it can't do good or evil. They bring it into their house, and they're taking this tree. Now you have to remember that the word uh, the word tree shows up hundreds of times. In the Bible. And they're talking about this tree. Coming from the wilderness. Uh, from somewhere else. And uh, it they set it up. With the works of their hands. So that it stands upright. This has to do with the men you elect. And put into power. This doesn't have to do with Christmas trees. Uh, and because with the works of your hands. You're allowing these things to be. It's to stand up upright, and again, you have to understand the metaphor I mean the same word that you see there translated axe it's not the only word in the Hebrew for axe. it can mean axe, but it's actually only translated axe once it's also translated tongs, like something you grab and you put a and you hold on to and and you can grasp with your tongs. So the word, same word for axes, is the same word for tongs. No, <laughs> they're they're trying to express ideas. That's it's an unused root word that actually begins with a mem and uh, has to do with righteousness. It has several letters in it that have to do with uh, righteousness, and uh, mem has to do with flow. And so anyway. And and even the word workman, if you go and look at the word workman in the Hebrew, but now they translate. But these people are speaking in metaphors, and that word workman, it's often more often translated carpenter. It doesn't really mean carpenter; it means craftsman, artisan, somebody who creates something. Well, what did you create? You created a government, and you brought these men into your house, and you made them stand upright, and you gave them your silver and gold. <laughs> And now they rule over you. They aren't really doing evil. You have empowered them to do evil. You will pay the price of their sins because they are just your political puppets. You've created them. And that's really what it's about. It's not about Christmas trees. And so this whole conflict about, oh, should you celebrate Christmas, not celebrate Christmas, and people... I haven't celebrated Christmas since I was nine years old. But I... You know, celebrate it the way everybody else celebrates it. You know, I, I was the Bahama kid. I was happy. I was smiley. And in the, to tell you the truth, until I was about nine years old or ten years old, I got sick every Christmas. Every Christmas I would be sick for the whole Christmas holidays. It was horrible. I hardly got out of my pajamas during the Christmas holidays. <laughs> i come home from school and I, would, I couldn't breathe and I... I I couldn't understand what it was, but one day I was sitting there watching everybody Christmas shop, and I saw the greed in people. I saw I saw into the other realm of their own hearts, and not at everybody at Christmas, but you you all know you go to the Christmas stores, and and everybody's running around. I know people who go into debt that they don't pay off until December of the next year. <laughs> Uh, to buy gifts for everybody because they're so addicted. It's like an emotional high, hearing the music, seeing the decoration. they got to go back to that. And in itself, it can do no evil, but it can also do no good. Uh, but the same when you create your governments. they The governments don't really do what... They will do bad things, but they are really a, just a product of the power that you've given them. It's like Saul. Saul was a great guy. You gave him power and it corrupted him. You corrupt the governments with the power that you give them. Why do you give them power? Because you're slothful. Because you're lazy. You're not doing it yourself. So now during this government shutdown people are saying oh well they were going to set up barricades so nobody could go to the tomb of the unknown soldier. This is what last time they shut down the government. This is one of the stories that came out. And I thought you could call up the VFW and say hey We'd like you. We're not going to hire guys to put up barriers. We're going to let people go there. We'd like to have somebody keeping an eye on things. So can you have one of your VFW guys in there 24-7? They would would line up. They'd be down there in full uniform. And, uh, you know, they would do it for free. (laughs) And you could keep all those things open. And... uh, and people all talk about oh poor federal workers may not be able to pay their bills and they may pay their rent because the government shut down every time there's a government shutdown when the government starts up again they get all their back pay even though they didn't go to work so they're all going to they're all really going to get an extra vacation they're just going to get their check a little bit late and uh so anyway it's it's not that big a deal what the big deal is is that you're going to be creating your debt ceiling. In other words, you're going to give them more silver and gold. <laughs> and you would be giving them silver and gold if you had any silver and gold. But you've already given all the silver and gold away. You don't have that anymore. And, and hopefully we'll get into some of that and explain to you, show you how all that's taken place. So what are you giving them? You know, and this is another one of the things that they always talk about in the Christmas holidays is... Yeah, they come from the ancient Druid holidays, you know, and they were actually sacrificing children and, and all these kinds of things. Well, that's actually what you're going to give them because the debt ceiling, as you increase that, who has to pay that off? It will be your children. You're cursing your children with more and more debt. And it has nothing... Th- this whole distraction about uh, celebrating Christmas or not celebrating Christmas... Really is a distraction. It really doesn't matter. I, I'm, you know, absolutely content with people gathering together at Christmas and meeting with the family and all this stuff, and getting together and maybe even going out and helping people. Uh, unfortunately, you know, like a lot of people will do around Thanksgiving is they'll make up food baskets and they'll go around and give to the poor and everything. But there's no discretionary giving. There's no wise giving. And the fact is, is people have to eat 364 days, they actually don't have to eat 364 days, but they have to eat 52 weeks out of the year, let's put it that way. (laughs) And so, because you gave something during Christmas week or Thanksgiving week, what about the rest of the year? You know, it's a nice gesture, but Christianity was far more practical, which is why Christ commanded that people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, so that they could take care of one another. And that's, where the persecution, the pagan persecution comes into play. But if you come back, we're going to tell, tell you what a real pagan is and what a real Christian is and how you can move in the, the direction of the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that will automatically take you away from the pagan practices. We'll be back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So... What is this whole thing with the paganism and Christianity and Christmas and all that stuff? Well, again, it doesn't really matter that some of what we see coming down as Christmas holiday has some pagan origins because that that is irrelevant to the message of Christ you will find elements of the message of Christ in a lot of the rhetoric that surrounds modern Christianity. And you will also find some of the activities that surround Christmas is actually selfish and commercialized and uh, how many people got drunk at Christmas? (laughs) But the reality is a lot of people get together with their family and they care about one another and they renew old acquaintances and... You know, like the Christmas Carol, some of the movies of the Christmas Carol, you got a stingy guy who's ruining his life with hatred and resentment and unforgiveness. He finally has an awakening that he needs to forgive and care about others, and he goes out and he starts doing that and spreading that caring, uh, not just on Christmas, but, you know, he raises... Uh, his employees' uh, wages and starts being concerned about his employees' children and all these things. Oh, those are good things. They're all very Christian things, Christ-like things. And so, yeah, that, that that's the good. But what we have to be careful of is fixing on, you know, the symbols and the metaphors that carry some of these good ideas. Because when you focus on the metaphor instead of the principle then Christmas can carry you in the wrong direction well, all you're thinking about is how much money you're gonna make or you know what gifts you're gonna get that was one of the things that caused me to kind of turn my back on this celebrating I didn't stop celebrating Christ I didn't stop you know thinking peace on earth good will towards men uh but you know I always heard people saying that uh, christmas had become too commercialized, but then everybody nobody did anything about it and so I made a point of not giving- gr- gifts on christmas uh I would give gifts other times of the year, the rest of the year, and not do that and I just tried to make people aware that you because know, I was always doing it in a nice nice sort of way, and everybody they all they thought it was kind of cute and it was funny, and all this stuff, but I was making people think. About the holiday, instead of just getting swept away with the holly, uh, the holiday spirit that I wanted to be conforming to the Spirit of Christ. and so that's the way in which I celebrate Christmas is to try to get people to conform to the Spirit of Christ. and so but it has a lot to do with perspective that we, we get we are creatures of habit. You know, uh when we had the recent snow and the sheep, I, I let the sheep go down out onto the desert and I feed them with the cows. And they eat with the cows. They're, they're all mingling together and they're eating. And they're a little bit safer because the coyotes don't come when they're with the cows, which allows me to go back and get more hay for the next day and load it up. And then I can come out and watch the sheep. And they're, they've been safe because the cows have been watching them. But then they go around and then they go back up because I've laid out some hay where their pen is and they'll go back up in the evening but they follow this same trail they vary a little bit sometimes but they always end up back on that same trail and you just see their trail through the snow and that that's the same trail they follow in the summertime but it's more obvious in the snow because they're creatures of habit and so as you grow up if they celebrate christmas in your house you may want to celebrate to get that good feeling again you celebrate birthdays in your house You may want to celebrate birthdays when you're raising your kids. Well, what I want you to have, and not just by habit, but by the leading of the Holy Spirit, is I want you to have the habits of Christ. And the habits of Christ are forgiveness and giving. And you'd be amazed at how many people don't have that in their life. But they pick up other habits. You know, like uh, when the going gets too rough, they abandon Everything, you know, people who have divorces, multiple divorces, that, and uh, of course, now they say, Well, I had three divorces. I know people have had five divorces, um, or at least five wives. I guess they haven't divorced the last one yet. But the reality is, these are habits that they develop. And, you know, the, I knew an old guy, he says, I could get almost any woman to fall in love with me. I just couldn't keep her in love with me. <laughs> And he had had a number of divorces. The last wife he had, he's, he stuck with her. And he made a real point of sticking with her in hard times and disease and all kinds of difficulties. But uh, she did end up resenting him too. And she he couldn't figure out why it was. Well, it actually, he was repeating a pattern that began with him back when he was five years old. And finally, when I showed him that, he was just astounded. It didn't make it all go away. What made it go away is practicing forgiveness and giving. Now, you can walk into a room and say, I forgive you, Dad, for all the stuff you did, or I forgive you, Mom, or whatever it is, that whoever it is you have to forgive. But that doesn't make the scars go away. What makes the scars go away is actually giving to that person. I, I know, you know, I've done this with people. They say, well, i forgive my dad for all the stuff he did. You know, maybe he was an alcoholic and brutalized his family. And it says I've forgiven him. I says so. When have you called him last? Oh, I'm not calling him. I'm not gonna to talk to him. And says well, I thought you'd forgiven him. No, it's, it's too painful. Well, you haven't forgiven him. Till you can walk in the room. Till you can to take care of him in his old age. Until you can be there when he's grumpy and smile back with patience and love. You haven't really forgiven. You 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 want to forgive him? Okay, I admit that. But you have to actually go through the functions of forgiving him, And this is why Christ told you to gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because you can't do that unless you forgive other people. Unless you are patient with other people. Unless you can sit down with uh prostitutes and widows and publicans and uh, democrats, <laughs> republicans and democrats, and love everybody that you're sitting down with doesn't mean you agree with everybody doesn't make you make everybody feel comfortable but you actually radiate this love towards them and one of the evidence of radiating that love towards them is can you actually give them a physical gift you know and hopefully not you know aftershave lotion or something they don't really need <laughs> but you know give them something some, some may, it might be a piece of advice it might be you help them out uh, you might be do them a favor. But if you do it from the spirit of Christ, it will have a different effect than if you do it from the spirit of justification where you're trying to justify yourself. You're actually, you have to bring that offering. And this is why Jesus says, you know, if you have, you know, rock out, you know, if you have a beef against your brother, don't come to the altar and give us a gift. Go make peace with your brother. And so, A lot of times, uh, some of the people you have to make peace with have already died. But there will be people in your life that have similar characteristics and traits. There, There may be people in your congregation that have the same characteristics of your dad or your father or your old boss or whatever it is. Can you forgive them? Can you come in with the love that you should have had to begin with? I saw somebody, you know, shows a picture of like a Roman soldier. and They label the shield, the shield of faith. And, uh, his, his, uh, belt sheath that goes around and it says the belt of truth. And so they got all these symbols on the uniform and everything. But the reality is, is do you really want to know the truth about just other people or the truth about yourself, about your own selfishness? So anyway, I, I've been working on an article on tithe at preparing you. And, uh, the word tithe is, uh, in the Hebrews, Maser. And, uh, it, that's actually the word asar, which, uh, means ten, the number ten. But they put an M on the front, and those of you who follow us regularly know that M has to do with flow. And th- so they're saying the flow of ten. So tithe is the flow of ten, or the flow from ten. So what did the people that gathered in groups of ten And a tithe was what flowed from those ten. It wasn't necessarily ten percent. Because they talk about several different kinds of tithe. And we won't go into all that now. But if this is ten percent, and this is ten percent, and this is ten percent, and this is ten percent, then you really have forty percent tax (laughs) in Israel. Well, you didn't. Uh, It has to do with the flow of ten. And it says very clearly, you tithe to them according to the service. So you're not giving 10% all the time. You're tithing to them this flow of 10, the flow of the 10 families that are gathered together in a free assembly. It's not a corporation. It's not an unregistered corporation or an unregistered association. It's a free assembly. The flow from that is your tithe. And you tithe to a minister according to his service. I just read another little short article that says if there's... If there's clergy and laity in your church, then you're not being a Christian. Well, that's ridiculous. It's absurd. And, you know, I think, well, you know, I could write this guy and explain all that. But but he went on to say, a clergy that is there to tell you what to think and believe and all this kind of stuff. Well, he's right. There should be no clergy to do that. But there was a role of clergy. The clergy was to receive, that the, they call them Levites, they were to receive your tithe. What were they doing with that? Well, they say there's three or four, uh, actually even five, depending on how you read the text, kinds of tithing. And some were for the poor. Well, that's not pad, that's not gonna buy him a big house. That's to go to the poor. That was to go to the needy. And, uh, and there was, there's a lot to it. We won't go into all it because it'll be too much of a rabbit trail. But the point is, is that this is what a tithe was. They didn't have any forced taxes in Israel for 400 years. Then they got the bright idea, let's elect a king, which is like cutting down a tree in the forest and bringing it in and making it set up right. (laughs) And so they elected a king and they were told what would happen, that he would take and take and take and take. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 17, you're supposed to write a constitution if you ever decide to have a king and forbid five things or you know regulate that office of king with five things written down and read to him every day. That's your constitution. In the U.S. Constitution, you can only find one of those things and they don't pay attention to it. But the other four aren't even in the constitution. And one is that he wasn't to accumulate silver and gold. Which is what the decorating of your tree in Jeremiah ten is all about. <laughs> is that silver and gold. Uh but it was under Saul that he forced a sacrifice, forced an offering. That that sacrifice, that tithe, that forced offering was the first taxation in Israel. And and Samuel came in and called this a foolish thing. And your kingdom would not stand because you did this. But of course it was predicted that he would do that. He would take and take and take and take and appoint men over you and take your sons and daughters and make your sons run before his chariots. And they, they tell you all this in Samuel 8. You can go look it up yourself. You If you don't want to look it up in the Bible because you don't have one, go look up the pamphlet Common Sense by Thomas Paine because he quotes the whole thing in there. So anyway, so the idea is So what's the principle here? If your government can draft your sons and make them run before their tanks, (laughs) then you have gone the way that Samuel 8 says you should not have gone. And God says that you will cry out eventually because of all this taking and taking and taking. And God will not hear you. So that's already where you're at. If they can force your offerings, you're already there. So the tithe is what they did instead of taxes. Who gets to decide how much the tithe is? Each individual in the family. It was a re- literally a republic, a pure republic. That's what Israel was when it was set up originally. There were no taxes. There were tithes. But each man had to decide what was right in his own eyes. There was no king to force the offerings of the people. It was the Holy Spirit in you that would be forcing you to give. And that's what faith is. Faith is what you believe, compelling your actions. And so you were taxing yourself. A tithe is self-tax. And you were just, and you get to give it to whoever, whatever individual Levite you chose to give it to. And if he was providing real services, you would give, you would fund his his uh, services. And it was your responsibility to make sure that you were giving it to the right guy who was doing a good job. But that's a free government. Anything other than that is not a free government. And you're not free in it. If they can force your offerings, you're not free. Now that's, a lot of people say, oh, that's not true, because then that would mean I'm not free. Well, I'm sorry. You're not free. And that's just the way it is. I'm not saying to start a revolution. I'm just saying, turn around. Let's look the other way. Let's go the way of Christ. So what I've done now is I've added to that page on tithing a number of other pages. And uh, to give more explanation, I'll probably be built on the one which is called the reserve fund. But I put a number of quotes there without a lot of explanation uh, so that you can see it. And, And why I put that there is I was pointing out what the golden calf was, as the golden calf was a reserve fund. And I use the words reserve fund because that's a word that is commonly Uh, the way it's translated when talking about the other golden statues that you find in all the temples, not all the temples, but many of the temples throughout the Roman Empire, throughout the Greek, uh, I shouldn't say empire, but the Greek city-states, they had golden statues in many of their temples. And I point out in one of my articles that the temple at Ephesus, which the Christians were accused of robbing, in the Bible, they were accused of robbing it, was a bank. It was actually the World Bank of its time. And somebody recently, if you go back and listen to our... We have about seven hours uh, uh, recordings on trolls and the troll spirit and how to fend off the troll spirit. And then we put the last couple of uh, ones are dealing with trolls that uh, have condemned what we're teaching. And one of the condemnations. Kind of that they said is that, that we have these strange ideas that the temple at Ephesus was a bank. And so anyway, I added to this page so that you could see. And, and I, I just quoted all kinds of different books, articles. Some of them are, uh, very, uh, you know, peer-reviewed papers on early banks and temples and how they function. Because this is one of the things when I going through my seminary days, I kept asking our professors, so what were they doing in these temples? And nobody could ever tell me or nobody would ever tell me. I think a lot of them didn't know themselves because they were used to following that certain path, you know, like the sheep in the field. They will go a certain path and they will keep following that path. Occasionally you find a sheep that says, oh, well, let's, let's try over here or let's try over there and uh And the sheep will follow that one, and we had some sheep that were always tempting people uh, other people, other sheep to go off in the wrong direction, and we named that sheep Cora, and I've got lots of stories about Cora; she's gone now, but uh uh she was always leading a small band off in the wrong direction, and of course, what I'm doing, I'm not trying to lead you off; I want to take you back to the Holy Spirit. But in order to do that, I have to show you that a lot of the ideas that you accepted are not really where it's at. Christmas tree, no Christmas tree, doesn't make any difference. You know, if you want to have a Christmas tree, go right ahead. If you want to deck the halls with boughs of holly, go ahead. But don't leave off looking for the Holy Spirit. And don't settle for the Spirit of Christmas. Seek the Holy Spirit in all things. And so in order to help you let go of some of the ideas that you've already gotten, in order to get you off the rutted path that you're already in. It's kind of like The Hobbit. You know, Hobbits have been there for years and years in the story of The Hobbit. And one of the things they show you is these pathways through a hill has worn down so much that it's, it's literally a cut right through the hill. Hill. They used to walk over a hill and then the, the path wore down and wore down and wore down so that now they're walking through the hill. <laughs> and, uh, because they, they go, as a rule, we do it this way. And we go this way. And, uh, so here along comes Frodo and he's doing things out of the usual, out of the norm. He's breaking the pattern. And so I, I don't want to just break the pattern. I don't want to just uh sever you from the rituals and ceremonies you're used to and to make you feel comfortable and all that stuff. I want to lead you to the Holy Spirit. And sometimes that means to tear down some of the walls that keep you from seeing the truth about what you have already previously accepted as the truth that just ain't so. So these these temples allowed society a way of securing economic loyalty of the people, but when carried too far, often secured the people in a snare of bondage and surety. I'm quoting from the page on Reserve Fund. And half of the words in that quote are links to other pages on surety, bondage, snare, and, uh, and, and so that you can understand, you know, what... You know, how the people actually became, they were snared and became collateral for debt. And so now that brings in, why are we talking about the debt ceiling <laughs> in the United States? And, and what is that, that whole debt ceiling all about? And, uh, why is that, uh, e- even of concern when we're talking about the kingdom of God? Well, what was going on in Rome had something to do with the kingdom of God. That's just the way it is. And so, you need to understand the context in which the Bible was written, the context in which Christ was walking, the historical context in which Christ was preaching the kingdom of God. If you don't understand these words, like, call no man on earth father, like the word religion, you know, because... You know, five times we see the word religion in the New Testament. Four times it's bad religion he's talking about. It's not good religion. Only one time do they talk about good religion. They call it perfect religion. And that's taking care of the widows and orphans. How do you take care of the widows and orphans today? Do you do it through charity? Do you do it through love? Do sons take care of their fathers? I mean, obviously a widow and orphan is somebody who has no sons. Their sons have died or... You know, there are all kinds of different reasons why you might not have any sons to take care of you in your old age. But, so how do you deal with that? How do you take care of those widows without family? Which is what an orphan is, somebody without family. Well, you do that through faith, hope, and charity in the perfect law of liberty. And, and that's what the early church was doing, is taking care of people in just that way. One of the things that I did write down is that... Uh, The U.S. Treasury now, supposedly, the government shut down because they have to pass a rule in Congress to raise the debt ceiling. And they won't do that unless Trump is allowed to build his wall. And, of course, it's not Trump's wall. Eighty percent of the people in America think that we need to secure our borders. That's a common poll that's come out over and over again. But the national debt is like $22 trillion dollars and rising and uh, I had some other figures on this they say when we get to 30 trillion dollars there will be no way to even meet the interest payment uh through taxation which is what we're doing now people people have posted things about you know social security that you know it's this private trust fund it's never been a private trust fund we show in our article which we link on these pages to social security has never been a private trust fund It was created because the government was bankrupt and it needed more collateral for debt. And so how do you get collateral? You offer benefits, but it says right there and you go to our website and show you that there is no guarantee of benefits, that what you're doing is that, yeah, you might get some benefits, but you're signing up and waiving a right to a portion of your labor. And it's a way through which they can compel your tithes, except it's not a tithe anymore. They call it taxation and it's it's why your wages and salaries became subject to income tax because you applied for benefits at the expense of your neighbor. And we we approach this and show you in numerous ways we show you the Supreme Court rulings that say there is no division of funds if the US is bankrupt, if the US is short of funds, there the the Social Security funds are part. Nobody Made a rule that you could now pilfer the Social Security fund. From the beginning, those funds were accessible to the government. Yeah, it was the Democrats who kind of uh, created the modus operandi of doing that. But the reality is, is they always had access. It's not a. It's they're not infringing upon a trust. What the system of Social Security is is the system of Corbin of forced offerings, forced by law. For those who sign up, you know, that's one of the things, On one of the little clippings that it posts on our website. Somebody else put it there. I haven't gone and looked at it, but I heard that they put it there. Is that this is not a voluntary program. It's a compelled, uh, well, the compulsion that they're talking about is employers are compelled to withhold those funds from members who have social security numbers. And, then they are compelled by law to send those funds with their tax ID number or their employer identification number in. But signing up was a voluntary act. And it was, you were signed up, uh, you signed up, your parents signed you up, and then the use of that number is part of that voluntary. And we explain all this in Call No Man on Earth Father. We explained it all in employee versus enslaved. But we're not doing it because we want you to rebel against the world. You pay Caesar what you owe Caesar. But seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Because what's happening is that debt ceiling is increasing and increasing and increasing. And your children are more and more and more in debt. A debt that they they can work all their life and never pay off. And we show... You know, for those who need all the complex numbers and want to see the citations in law, that's all there. It's all available for you to to look at. But those who just realize it's not loving your neighbor to force your neighbor to contribute to your welfare. That's not love. That's not also living by faith. That seeking the kingdom is seeking a way in which to take care of one another in righteousness, which is what we're supposed to be doing, is seeking the kingdom of God in His righteousness. So you take care of one another through voluntary, intentional communities that care about one another as much as you care about yourself. In order to do that, you're going to have to forgive, and you're going to have to give. You're going to have to not be slothful in the ways of God. But we'll be right back to show you more about the kingdom. So anyway, I'm going to read a few of the quotes from a reserve fund and this is kind of my gift to you, my Christmas gift to you, if you want. Uh, And it's to try to dispel some of the ideas that you have. Christmas is not your enemy. Uh, It's also not your ally. can't do no good nor evil. Uh, Christianity as it's now presented in the common churches is not your enemy. Uh, government is not your enemy. Taxation is not your enemy. It's, it happens to be just what is around you. The Federal Reserve is not your enemy. That's one of the things that I think President Trump said something to the effect that the Federal Reserve is one of the major problems. Now, these things are evidence of the problem. And the solution, of course, is to seek the kingdom of God in His righteousness. And you will need miraculous spiritual intervention in this process. But this will include things like being loyal to your wife and to your husband and to your family and at the same time caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. Betraying your matrimonial vows is actually going to throw you into a greater and greater pit of despair. And so that's where it starts is in the family. And part of those matrimonial vows is to, because the kingdom of God is from generation to generation, is to do right by your children. Well, just wanting the debt ceiling to be raised so that you get your federal check uh every month is not loving your children and not passing uh the freedom that should belong to every man onto your children. It's actually passing on debt and bondage. But people don't see that. But anyway, let's go back to the idea that the first temples were the first banks, or the first banks were the first temples. The first banks, and I'm reading from an article called The History of Banking. It's just a, and we have the links on preparing you at the Reserve Fund page. The first banks were probably the religious temples of the ancient world. Probably the religious temples of the ancient world. Not in the temples. They're the same. And were probably established sometime during the millennium, the third millennium, B.C. Banks probably predated the invention of even money whenever we think the invention of money. We we have the invention of money as a certain period of time. I think it's around 600 B.C. But that isn't necessarily a guarantee. Uh, but it says deposits initially consisted of grain and later other goods, including cattle, agricultural implements, eventually precious metals such as gold, in the form of easy to carry, uh, compressed plates, temples and palaces w- were the safest place to store gold and they were, uh, constantly attended and well built. And so these sacred places, these temples presented an extra, uh, deterrent to thieves. The other thing is, is that the temples were sacred places. If you were robbing a temple or a church, Everybody was against you. In your city and in the next city. Because that was just totally taboo. Because you're not robbing from an individual. You're robbing from everybody. Because that's where they stored their wealth. Their excess wealth. Their fat of the land, so to speak. They go on to say there are extent records of loans from the 18th century B.C. in Babylon that were made by temples. The priests and monks of those temples Two merchants. By the time of the Hammurabi codes, banking was well enough developed to justly and and the promulgation of laws governing banking operations. So you actually find that in the Hammurabi Code. So that's that's going way back there. All centered in temples where the temples are literally the banks. If you go back to Egypt, that's where the temples in Egypt actually stored grain, because grain was the commodity. It was actually a monetary substance almost. You know, you carry around and pay for things with sacks of grain because it had this intrinsic value. It was, it would keep in the desert climate. And uh, so people would actually use it as a trade good. They also created other forms of currency to trade things with. But it was a highly trading society. But uh, it's uh, what it exported often was, one of the main exports was grain. Because they had these floods and they could grow this large amounts of grain, and they were still exporting grain uh, centuries and centuries later. They were exporting it to to Rome. One of the uh, because in the Roman economy grain production had slipped away because they could get it so much cheaper in these gigantic, massive ships the size of Noah's Ark from Egypt, and thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of bushels would come into Rome every day by these ships and ports but anyway that that was one article and we have a link to the whole article so you can go check it out for yourself uh like many other ancient civilizations this is another article uh that we have linked to uh it says that uh, greek banking was often centered around the temples grecian temple bankers took deposits made loans Engaged in money changing, that's exchanging types of currency, different forms of value, as well as services in validating uh, the purity and authenticity of coins. Greek foreign exchange services were provided by merchants, money changers, pawnbrokers, both private and city governments, back money lenders operated out of the temple Banks. They actually call them temple banks. So the idea that the Temple of Ephesus was a bank, we actually are pointing out that it's a world bank because it was built by so many 127 different countries were investing in that bank, that temple, changes a huge idea as to what paganism is. In your mind, should change. Now again, the word pagan just meant you were from a small village. It was not used, there was no pagan religion. But the practices of things other than what the Christians were doing was eventually called paganism by early Christians. And then it even morphed more when the early Constantinian Christians, which were a little bit different, they weren't following all the same things that the early Christians did. They were emulating some of the things of early Christianity but they themselves were leaving out some important elements, some important rituals and ceremonies of the early church and started this other church, this Constantinian church, that would have a mix of ideas in it. And yeah, that's where some of what we call pagan rituals and stuff kind of snuck in. But that's not really the essential thing, is the spirit. So I don't want to label thing people protestants, catholics, uh greeks, romans, jews, those labels don't mean anything to real christians who weren't called christians but followers of the way and that way is a way of charity, of forgiveness, of hope, of blessing one another, forgiving even our enemy and even blessing our enemy. And so it's not about anti-government, it's not about tax protesting. It's about going another way, which will allow a door to be opened between us and the kingdom of heaven. And that door is opened in us, in our hearts and in our minds. And the Holy Spirit will guide us in everything that we do. But anyway, that quote goes on to talk about the Bank of Delos operated through credit transfers while silver and gold was vaulted in the treasuries of the Temple of Apollo. And this is the history of money, uh, article, uh, with a greater title of Tem- Temple Bankers and Money Changers in Ancient Greece. And these aren't religious de- deals. These are, uh, these are articles that you can look up right online. And, uh, and that's why I picked ones that you go and we put the links down there so you can go look at it. So this idea of banking, so, I don't know if you're catching the drift here. Is the Federal Reserve really the head of your church? Because it's the Federal Reserve that loans money to the United States government. That's what the debt ceiling is all about. Loans money to the United States government to send you your Social Security check to take care of the widows and orphans of your society. So, your church is really... If you're dependent upon Social Security, welfare, all these other government programs, which are run by men who exercise authority one over the other, something condemned by Christ in a system of Corbin, of forced offerings, condemned by Christ, then your real church, your real temple, is the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury. Or if you're in Canada, I mean, they have, you know, all these countries have Federal Reserves. There were a few countries that didn't have them. There might even still be a couple that don't have them. But East Timor didn't have one, but then it was suddenly invaded by uh, an army that was completely supplied by the United States government. And guess what? Now East Timor has a Federal Reserve. (laughs) It also had huge gold and mineral deposits, which are being scoffed up by uh, corporate capitalism or uh, crony capitalism, (laughs) which isn't the fault of capitalism, it's the fault of the sloth of the people, Who aren't paying attention and don't want to really know what's going on? They just want to pretend that they're believers in Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ call the weightier matters? Law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Well, where was the law, judgment, mercy, and faith when the Indonesian army was supplied by the U.S. government under Jimmy Carter, invaded East Timor, created, killed? thousands and tens of thousands of people created rape camps, murdered, pillaged, and eventually set up a Federal Reserve which allowed people to come in and buy up all the minerals and mine that country uh, and exploit it. Now, truthfully, that that country's standard of living has increased tremendously, but other men have become multi, 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 multi millionaires. And that kind, of even though it's a little tiny country, that kind of precedent of allowing that to go on on our watch is setting in motion uh, opening another door to another realm which is not the kingdom of heaven but the kingdom of hell and it will bring about all the destruction and you know this you've sowed those seeds of violence in other lands in East Timor is just a little tiny country but I can show you this in lots of other countries and it's going to come back. You're going to reap the whirlwind. So anyway, we have other articles there. The Parthenon also had a function as Treasury of the Delian League and a Reserve Fund. For example, I mean these are these are direct quoted, so there's that word reserve fund. For example, every tributary town was supposed to send an ambassador to the, the Panathone. Peneth- I can't even say it. Penitentia and offer a cow and Penelope. So, anyway, what does that all mean? How do you give a cow? And you remember when I just read there in the banking that it was originally grain, but eventually it included livestock. So, where do you keep all this livestock? Well, even Israel, all the Levites had lands in common. They didn't they didn't own them as a personal estate, but they were Levite lands that would keep flocks. Why? Because people donated sheep. And a Levite could take those sheep and sell them in a market to get money to buy what they did need for the service to the tabernacles of the congregation. The tabernacles of the congregation was not just that single tent, but it was all the tents of the congregations. This is how they served the people because they were the national welfare system. So if your family broke down and you couldn't take care of you know, your kids all died or you never had kids or whatever, there were people the homeless, they could take care of those homeless. And all those instructions about, you know, stoning certain people had nothing to do with hitting them in the head with rocks, but it had to do with cutting them off from the stones of the altar. That you were not supposed and we will go through all this eventually in other places we don't have time today. But the Israelite Levites were the depository. They were funding those people to take care of the welfare of society. And those people were to take care of the welfare of society. If you were totally immoral, totally base, totally selfish, slothful, they weren't going to help you out as much as somebody who just fell on hard times. And this encouraged everybody across the board to have virtue in their life to care about one another, to help one another, to be a cheerful giver. Because they were operating for those first hundred years on faith, hope, and charity. It's when they decided to have men who could exercise authority, they were told those men would end up taking and taking and taking and taking and taking. And you would cry out and God would not hear you. Now, if you want God to hear you, you have to turn around and start going back the other way. And then you open this door of the Holy Spirit because you are seeking the kingdom of God, the government of God that operates by faith, hope, and charity rather than the governments that operate on force, fear, and violence. And and there's just constant quotes in here that you can go back to uh, the list of treasures which uh from the time of uh, Pericles to the downfall of the Athenian supremacy was stored in the Parthenon. So they're talking, and they actually have a marble, uh, you know, this temple was up on the Acropolis and, uh, they have a, a marble thing that actually etches in the marble around 438 BC, the inventory of what was held in the treasury at the Parthenon. And we still have that. And so what was that, you know, and, and these objects, uh, that were in the temple were dedicated by states, other states, and individuals. The tenth of the spoils of war, that was also put in there. And again, you talk about the tenth of the spoils of war, and then we go back to Melchizedek, what he was doing. See, if you don't know what these guys were doing, and you accept these shallow explanations of ministers who really haven't done their homework, then you're not going to understand what was really going on. But, but they tell that these, uh, the money, uh, accruing from sacred lands. What are the sacred lands? That's those lands that the Levites had and a lot of other people had it. And the temple of Ephesus had it. They had farming enterprises. They were big into fishing enterprises. They had boats. They were also big into shipping enterprises and insuring ships and cargo that, you know, and payment for cargo. You know, like if you're gonna ship cargo across to another nation and then you sell all your goods and they put the gold on your ship and then you're shipping it back pirates could steal it An, uh, 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 you know a storm could sink your ship there goes all your gold so they would just keep their gold <laughs> at the in the temples in that place and they would be notified that they had on deposit this much gold now they could buy stuff at that port, load onto the ship, and go to the next port to unload that. And that's where you get these circular deals where they're buying something in this place, or they're selling something in this place, buying more, and then but they are leaving some of their wealth there. And they're leaving some of their wealth in this port, and some of their wealth in this port. So if, if they get invaded over here, like we talked about when we were talking about home church, and we were showing how one of the early home churches had to be abandoned because the whole area was invaded. They, they could go somewhere else and they still had well somewhere else that was registered in another temple, another bank. Behold, how about that? We call it offshore banking now. <laughs> so that, that if, if, if one economy is hit, you still have funds somewhere else. Well, Christ warned you about this whole treasury thing. And says, don't put all your wealth in the treasury. Invest it in the kingdom of God. Well, how do you invest in the kingdom of God? You throw money up into the air like the old joke, you know, of the rabbi and the the Lutheran, you know, they throw the money up in the air and and what God wants he can keep, you know. (laughs) Well, no. Investing in the kingdom of heaven is this sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and caring about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself. And funding the most charitable guy in your midst to link you with all the other congregations all over the country, all over the world, in a system of faith open charity where you actually, actively, love your neighbor as yourself. Because these, all these banks that we're talking about, all these temples, from Pericles to Babylon to what have you, to Rome to Ephesus, they all, Athens, they all fell. The downfall of Athens was 404 uh, B.C. But, you know, where did all that gold go? Well, it went into the treasuries of Rome. <laughs> and they actually owned mines. And they leased those mines out. Silver mines of uh, uh, Laurium uh, furnished one of the principal sources of the Athenian Revenue. And so, and the same thing with the Levites is that they had this cattle and sheep and what have you and they could sell that off and buy other things. Uh, buy what was in the time of war. They could send out, you know, uh, medicines and, you know, the silver staples to help, um, uh, staple up wounds. I saw wounds the other day, uh, in a picture that were stapled up with the silver staples where they, clamped them together for better healing. These are ideas that came out of Roman medicine thousands and thousands of years ago. And most of the banking practices came out of those times. Although now today and like before the Depression, these banking practices shifted about. So anyway, all that is on our reserve fund. Then we also have a page that I added in support of our tithing page, which is the FDR page. And I went and linked it all over the other articles that mention Franklin Delano Roosevelt and some of the things that he did. And so I, because I I make reference to these guys, uh, I thought maybe you'd want to know some of the history of that. So I've got lots of Supreme Court decisions, lots of the bills that were passed, uh, the Nixon shock era of the 1970s. All that is historically laid out on that page so that you can understand. And of course, FDR, uh, he was actually... Was he Secretary of State? Uh, Secretary of something under uh, Woodrow Wilson, which brought in the uh, Federal Reserve and the uh, United Nations. But uh, he's FDR brought in Social Security Act, and we have lots of articles so you can understand that. People are talking about, well, we paid into Social Security and they're robbing the fund. Not so. Uh, Social Security guarantees you no benefits. You have nothing on deposit. You're simply taking... And the whole idea of Social Security Act was started when the Federal Reserve stopped loaning money to the U.S. because we were low on assets. They, they're they loaning money against collateral. They've always done this. It's a private bank. They loan money against collateral. And we were running short on collateral. And so... Some of that collateral would be increasing because of the Federal Reserve, but you had to change a few things, and we've changed those now. Uh, but they they needed more collateral, and the collateral they needed was U.S. citizens. And you became a surety for debt. And they offered you, yeah, if you will become surety for debt, we will offer you Social Security benefits. We're not going to guarantee them we're just going to offer to him. And that's been the rule from the beginning. You think that somehow or other you got some sort of guarantee or warranty. No. You're waiving a right of a portion of your labor and you're willing to do this because you're entering into an, uh, 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 an agreement that thinks it's okay to take from your neighbor to provide you with benefits. But it also thinks it's okay to borrow against the future of your children to provide you with those benefits. The United States was already operating in the red when they started Social Security and it's never really been out of the red since. So Social Security has always operated in the red because there is no division of funds. From the beginning, that was the ruling. No division of funds. There is no separate trust fund. This is all in your imagination. And again, this is what we're trying to get you away from is your imagination and get you to live in the realm of facts and then take a look at those facts and find out that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's within your reach. It's a system of self government operating on faith open charity, motivated out of love for one another, and the willingness to lay down your life for your fellow man and for the next generation. So that you may pick up a life more abundant. You get that when you're seeking the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If you are not seeking that, but seeking something else, the kingdoms of the world, the fathers of the earth, the benefits of unrighteousness, or what they call the wages of unrighteousness in the, in the scripture. And we have links to articles that explain all these things, go through the words, then You know, if you're going other than towards the kingdom of God, you're going to find bad things happening. You're going to find destruction. And you don't want to find that. You want to find life more abundant. So, turn around. Join us at preparingyou.com or hisholychurch.org. And seek the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And God will provide everything else. Until then, peace on your house. And may God be with you.